When your alarm goes off in the morning, or you start to see the sun creep through the blinds, or you hear the patter of little feet somewhere in the house, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it, when you have the choice, do do I just roll over and stay here for the rest of the day? Or am I going to get up and face the day? What is it that motivates you to get up and get going? For some of you, it might be the desire to accomplish something. To check things off your list. To get things done. For some of you, it might be the desire to enjoy the day. What new adventures, what little pleasures, what joys await me today? Or for some of you, it may be obligation. Knowing that your family needs you to go to work or needs you to prepare them meals or needs you to care for them and provide for them. Or it may be something else for you or it may be a combination of all of those things. But all of us are motivated by something. Now what is it that motivates you to follow Jesus every day? What is it that drives you to say, Even if I don't want to, I'm going to read the Bible today. Even if I don't feel like it, I'm going to seek to show kindness to others today. Even if if I'm tired or exhausted, I'm going to seek to do what the Lord wants me to do today. I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to, whatever it is. What is it that motivates you to seek to honor the Lord in your decisions, in your actions, in your attitudes day after day? That is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. He is describing for us and reminding us of what it is that ought to fuel our life as believers. What it is that ought to motivate us to live lives of practical holiness and godliness. To do the things that God has called us to do. Romans 12.1 is a major turning point in the book of Romans. Up to this point, in chapters 1 through 11, Paul has mainly been dealing with theology. He has mainly been describing our sinful state as human beings. He's been describing the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. He's been describing God's plan to save Jews and Gentiles. It's been mostly theological. But with the therefore in chapter 12 verse 1, Paul makes a serious shift from focusing mainly on theology to focusing mainly on practice. To focusing on what the Christian life ought to look like, what we are called to do, what God wants us to do. There has been practical stuff in the theological part, and there will be theological stuff in the practical part from here on out. But his main focus from this point forward in the book of Romans is going to be on practice. Now this morning we're just going to focus on the very first verse. Let me read that one verse for us again. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, this way of dividing the letter, where you've got the first major section being about theology and the second major section being about practice or Christian living, that's pretty typical for Paul. The clearest example besides Romans is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians has six chapters. The first three are mainly about theology. The second three are mainly about practice. And right in the middle at chapter 4, verse 1, there's a therefore. He does the same thing in Galatians. Uh, In chapter 5, he shifts towards more practical things. In Colossians, again, it's four chapters. The first two are largely theological. Then in chapter 3, you get a shift to where it's mainly practical. Paul does this over and over and over. And it's significant for us that he does this because that word, therefore... Here in verse 1, tells us that our theology has consequences for how we live. Our theology ought to be linked to our practice. So what we can't do, what Paul doesn't want us to do, what we must not do, is we must not either say on the one hand, I loved chapters 1 to 11. I love all the theology. But now that we're in chapter 12, I'm done. I got what I needed. I got some deep thinking. I got some profound truths. I'm good. We shouldn't respond to Paul's teaching that way. And on the other hand, we also shouldn't say, whew, glad chapters 1 to 11 are done. I'm, you know, I've kind of tuned out to all that. Now that we're on the practical stuff, I'm ready to dial in. I'm ready to listen. No, we need to hold both of those things together, the theology and the practice. We ought to love both of them. We ought to uh, desire to learn both of them. We ought to be attentive to both of them because we cannot separate what we believe from what we do. Our theology fuels our practice. What we believe about God, what we believe about salvation, what we believe about how God is at work in the world is what motivates and drives and makes sense of how God asks us to live. Neither one of these things can survive or thrive on its own. Good theology with no practice is no longer good theology. There's something wrong with it. If it doesn't lead you to live a certain kind of way, you haven't grasped it correctly or you haven't understood it correctly or or something. Something is wrong. On the other hand, you can't have good practice, good Christian living for very long without some theology to undergird it and support it and fuel it and drive it. So that therefore in verse 1 is very important. I, I appeal to you, he says, therefore, brothers. So now he's moving from explanation to exhortation. I have explained to you what God has done and what God is doing. And now I'm appealing to you. I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you. I'm telling you. I'm exhorting you to do something. To live a certain kind of way. To put this theology that I've been teaching you now into practice like this. 
So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is the ground of my appeal. This is the reason for my appeal. And that phrase, by the mercies of God, is Paul's way of summing up everything he said so far in this letter. The whole thing, chapters 1 through 11, has all been in one way or another, or another ultimately, about the mercy of God. The very beginning of the letter, when he announced the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, Jew or Greek, right, that was that announcement, that good news was mercy from God, because as Paul explains in chapter 1, God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Apart from the gospel, apart from salvation, by grace through faith, through Christ, we would all remain under the wrath of God because of our sin. And so in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, Paul lays, lays out for us the reason why we need God's mercy, why we need Christ, why we need His salvation. And then in chapter 3, he shows us how Jesus' death on the cross, which was a sacrifice of propitiation, how that deals with God's wrath, so that everyone who believes in Christ not only has their sins forgiven, but is also declared righteous in God's sight. That's mercy. And then in chapter 4, he showed us that the way we receive that mercy, the way we receive that forgiveness and that verdict of righteousness is not by our works, but just like Abraham, we are counted righteous when we believe. It's by faith. And then in chapter 5, he, he showed us another degree of this mercy when he said, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We didn't have to clean ourselves up first. We didn't have to make ourselves presentable first. We didn't have to come before God and say, here's why I'm a great candidate to be one of your children, to receive your forgiveness. No, Christ died for us while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were still in our sins. That's mercy. In the second half of chapter 5, he showed us how though Adam, our first father, disobeyed and brought havoc and death and destruction into the world, Jesus, the second and greater Adam, came into the world and by his obedience not only exceeded but superseded all the destruction that Adam brought and has brought righteousness and life eternal for all who belong to him. In chapter 6, he showed us how our baptism teaches us and reminds us that since we have been joined to Christ by faith, our old life, our old self is now dead so that we've been set free from the sin that once enslaved us and now we have been made alive in Christ and anticipate a future bodily resurrection and so we are now able and called upon to live a different kind of life than the one we lived before we met Christ. In chapter 7 Paul explains that even though we're Christians, even though we're made new we still sin. We still wrestle with sin. There's still, we're not enslaved to it anymore, but it's also not absent yet from our lives. We have this 
sin still dwelling in us. And we still often do the very things we don't want to do. And so at the end of chapter 7, he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, I'm still in need of God's mercy. And then in chapter 8, which full of mercy, begins with Paul saying, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is mercy. At the end of chapter 8, he tells us that nothing in all of creation, death, life, height, depth, angels, power, what, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He extols the mercy of God. And then in chapters 9 to 11, he explains how God has shown mercy to Jews and how he's shown mercy to Gentiles. And uh, near the end of the chapter, in verse 32, he sums it up by saying, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And so Paul says, Now, I I have shown you, I I have extolled for you, I have explained for you the manifold mercy of God. And now on the basis of that mercy, I appeal to you to live a certain way. To live a life that is dedicated to the God who has shown you so much mercy. So here's how he says that. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So, he's appealing to us, based on God's mercy, to give ourselves to God as living sacrifices. Notice, first of all, that he says uh, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why does he say to present your body as a living sacrifice? I think the reason why he says that is to remind us or to let us know that he's not calling upon us merely to think a certain way or feel a certain way. He's calling upon us to act a certain way. When he says later in uh, the, at the end of the verse, this is your spiritual worship, and we'll talk a little bit about that phrasing and the, and the translation there later, but Even if he's talking about spiritual worship, he's not talking about spiritual in the sense of it being only internal, only mental, only heart level. The worship he is calling for us to offer to God involves our bodies. It's physical as well as spiritual. If we are only interested in theology and not really in practice... It's really easy to think that we can limit our theology merely to what we think or what we feel or what's going on internally. But Paul won't let us do that. Offer your body, he says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It's the same thing he says in Ephesians 2 after he said, we've been saved by grace through faith, apart from works, and this is not your own doing, so that no one may boast, and so on. Then he says in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our response to salvation involves deeds. Our response to God's mercy and grace involves actions. So he says, present your bodies, give yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Because of the Old Testament, we are familiar with the idea of a sacrifice, right? We know that in the Old Testament, that day after day, sacrifices were brought before the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple. Animals were brought and they were slaughtered and offered up to God. And Paul here is drawing on that idea, but he says that we are to be living sacrifices. In other words, he's not calling for us to be dead sacrifices, but living sacrifices. And there's a couple things he could mean by that. One, he could mean that he's not asking us to offer ourselves up as a one-time sacrifice to God where we die. As happened with the animals that were offered in sacrifice in the Old Testament. As happened with Jesus, who offered himself up as a real, once-for-all sacrifice where he died in our place for our sin on the cross. We are called to die to ourselves, right? Jesus called us to take up our cross and follow him. But the death that Jesus calls us to is not a one-time death. It's a daily death, a daily dying to ourselves whereby we live to Him. right? So He could just mean, uh, look, I'm not asking you to physically die. I'm calling you to be a living sacrifice. You go on being a sacrifice. You're a continuous sacrifice to God. Or on the other hand, and this one I had not uh, thought about, or at least not thought about much, before um, encountering, encountering it for one of my favorite teachers on Romans, I, I think he's got a really good point. He, he says it could mean living in the sense that Romans 6 is talking about us now being alive in Christ. For example, Romans 6.13 says, Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, you are a living sacrifice because you're no longer spiritually dead. You are now alive in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation, and that's the kind of sacrifice I want you to be. Either way, right, the idea, the basic idea is clear. That we are to give ourselves wholly, totally, always to the Lord. That we are to be living sacrifices, and he says not only living sacrifices, but also sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. Now, in one sense, both of those things are already true of us, if we're Christians. We're already holy, and we are already pleasing to God, because we are in Christ, and much of what is true of Christ has now become true of us. Right? So Christ is holy, and so in Christ now, we are holy. Christ is pleasing to God. Remember when he was baptized, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
We are now in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We have received the righteousness of Christ. We too are pleasing to God in Christ. But there's another sense in which the Bible calls us to pursue these things practically as well. We are to seek to be holy, to live holy lives, and to do the things that are pleasing to God. For example, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And Paul says that we all ought to be striving to please the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5.9 when he says whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. And in Colossians 1, he says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we are to offer ourselves to God as those who are alive in Christ, holy in Christ, pleasing to God in Christ, but also seeking to do the things that are holy and to do the things that are pleasing to God in order to bring honor to God as living sacrifices. So let's make that really practical for a moment. What does that mean? Well, that's what the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14 are about. But let's, let's just take a few examples. Verse 9 of Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12 uh, says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's part of what it means to live a holy life that's pleasing to God, offered in sacrifice to Him. As you love people genuinely, you hate things that are evil. You cling to things that are good. Verse 10 says that you love one another with brotherly affection. And you outdo one another in showing honor. That's part of how you live a holy life. You try to honor people more than you try to get them to honor you. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So you're eager, you're zealous, you're active in serving God. Verse 12, you rejoice in hope, you're patient in tribulation, you're constant in prayer. All of those things and more things that Paul goes on to say are practical things that we do to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy holy and acceptable to God. It means... Choosing to show strangers respect and kindness and courtesy because God has made them in His image. It means speaking to others with grace and kindness because of the kindness and grace that God has shown to you. It means going to work, training up your kids, doing all the mundane but necessary daily things as to the Lord and not to men. It means stopping your work and resting when it's appropriate, acknowledging that you are not God and you can't do everything. It means reading or listening to the Bible, praying, gathering with the church when you're able. All of those things and more, practical as they may be, mundane at times as they may be, are the kinds of things that we ought to do because of the mercy that God has shown to us. And here's the last thing Paul says in this verse. He says, this is a reasonable response to God's mercy. This is not an exaggerated response. To ask you 
to live your whole life oriented toward God, seeking to please God and honor God and do what God says. Not just a portion of your life, but all of your life. That is not an exaggerated response that Paul is asking you to give. It's not like somebody who lent you 20 bucks and now acts like you owe them your life. You do owe God your life. Not only your existence as your creator, right? Do you owe him your life because he made you? But also as the one who has loved you and saved you despite your sin and given up his own son and given you every other good thing that you need, you owe him everything. So Paul's not asking too much. He's not asking for an exaggerated response. He's not calling merely for a momentary emotional response. He's not saying if just once a week you could close your eyes during a hymn and feel something good about God, that's all I'm asking. That's not all he's asking. And that's a good thing, right? To sing a hymn or to blast your favorite worship song or whatever and, and feel gratitude and, and joy and worship toward God, that's a good thing, but that's not enough. Paul says, I'm not just asking you for, for that. I'm asking you every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, every Friday, every Saturday, and every Sunday, when you get up, your life is dedicated to doing what God wants you to do every day. And that's not asking too much. Instead, that is a reasonable response. Notice there, he says at the end, the last phrase is, which is your spiritual worship? Um, Now, the word there that's translated spiritual is the word logikos or logikos. And the only reason I say that is because you can hear in there the word logic, right? So... Some translations, like the ESV, like mine, translate that word spiritual, and that's a a good possible translation. But another good possible translation is the way the King James had it. And the King James translates that phrase, reasonable service. That, I think, is closer to what Paul means here. This is your reasonable, your logical, your rational service or worship or response to God. This is a reasonable way to respond to what God has done for you. I'm appealing to you on the basis of the mercies of God to give your whole life to God in worship. And that makes sense. If you have followed my train of thought, if you have followed my explanations from chapter 1 through chapter 11, by the time you get to chapter 12 and I ask you to give your whole life to God, you ought not to be saying, are you crazy, Paul? You're asking too much. You ought to be nodding your head saying, that makes sense. You're right, Paul. That is what I ought to do. And knowing myself, I know I'm not going to live up to it perfectly. I know I'm not going to do it always the right way. I know there are going to be days where I look back and say, I really missed the mark. 
But I know that that's what I ought to be doing. I know that's where, the, where my target ought to be, what my aim ought to be, what, where my striving ought to be directed. That sounds reasonable. That sounds logical. That makes sense. So here at the end of this long theological section of Romans, we have seen last time that theology leads to doxology, to worship, to praise. But we also see here that it leads to action, to deeds, to good works, to a lifestyle, to a way of living, to daily practices. It leads not only to a mind that thinks what God wants us to think and a heart that feels what God wants us to feel and a mouth that sings what God wants us to sing, but also hands and feet that get to work and do what God wants us to do. All of our lives belong to God because of all that He has done for us and all that He has given to us. So let us give ourselves wholly to Him, which is our reasonable response to His many mercies. Let's pray.